Welcome to episode number 141 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I'm the show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about prevention and mitigation of dust explosions, different methods and solutions for providing this prevention and mitigation. So I was flipping through my copy of Dust Explosions in the Processing Industries, or in the Process Industries, the third edition by Dr. Rolf Heckoff the other day and really came across this chapter, which is chapter 1.4, means for preventing and mitigating dust explosions. And in this chapter, he gave a really sort of, you know, high level summary of all the options for prevention and mitigation, but sort of in a succinct manner and categorized in a nice way. I thought this would actually make a pretty good podcast interview just to succinctly walk through the different methods for prevention and mitigation um, as outlined in the book. So this doesn't cover everything. Uh, The book was published in 2003 by Golf Publishing Press. So you can find it if you just Google dust explosions in the process industries by uh, by Rolf, R-O-L-F, Eckhoff. You'll find the book there. So it is about 20 years old, but it's still a lot of the strategies really apply today. And I really like the succinct way that this list was broken down. So I thought we'd shoot a, a podcast episode about it. So when writing this section or this chapter of the book, Dr. Eckhoff goes out of his way to really note that the literature on different prevention and protection and mitigation strategies is quite extensive. And this was 20 years ago. He gives a lot of references right up front. Um, books like Bartnick, uh, work done by Richard Sivak and others, work done by Swift, uh, books like Field and Reed, um, and many others. And he gives a whole list of them. And this was 20 years ago. So there's even more information available on today. But as I mentioned, I really like the way that he broke out prevention and mitigation strategies and then kind of talk through them. So I thought I'd give that same sort of breakdown today to sort of walking through the book. So when he breaks it out, he breaks it into three categories. Prevention of ignition sources, prevention of explosible dust clouds. So this would be how you stop an explosion. And then mitigation. So once you have an explosion, how do you make it have less impact on workers or less impact on the facility? How do you stop before it becomes a bigger issue? So prevention and mitigation. Under prevention, there's prevention of ignition sources and prevention of explosible dust clouds. There's a nice table right up front that sort of categorizes these. So under prevention of ignition sources, he has smoldering combustion in dust and dust flames. He has other types of open flames. He has hot surfaces, electric sparks, arcs, and electrostatic discharges, and heat from mechanical impact as being the main areas for prevention of ignition sources. Um, For prevention of explosible dust clouds, he has inerting by inert gases, inerting by adding inert dust, and so as opposed to adding a gas, adding a dust to the the dust mixture, and keeping the, the dust concentration outside the explosible range. So those are really your solutions that you're looking at for preventing the explosive dust cloud reforming. Then under mitigation solutions, he has uh, partial inerting as an option, isolation of the explosion, venting, pressure-resistant construction, explosion suppression, and housekeeping. And then he has a, a really interesting uh, subsection on construction and building design that we'll talk about at the end of this session, the end of this podcast episode as well. So he sort of breaks them into these different categories. So prevention of ignition sources, prevention of explosive dust clouds, um, and then mitigating explosion when it actually occurs. So under this category of preventing ignition sources, in the book, he really lays out an interesting way in terms of organizational ignition sources and operation ignition sources. So under organizationally, has things like smoking, open flames, open lights, welding, cutting, and grinding, so different hot work activities. Where on operational, he has things, again, open flames that are mentioned again, um, hot surfaces, self-heating and smoldering nests, echo, exothermic decomposition, mechanical impact, electrostatic sparks, arcs, and discharges. So he's really looking here about what can be 
addressed through organizational and human factor kind of elements, one needs to be addressed by engineering solutions on the actual processing equipment. So I'm going to talk through some of these different things that he, he mentioned here. We'll talk about self-heating, smoldering, decomposition. We'll talk about open flames and hot gases, hot surfaces, um, conveyance of smoldering nests, mechanical impact, and electrostatic sparks, arcs, and discharges as well. Guys, walk through them. And again, these are just subsections in this chapter of the book where he hits some really important high points on each one. In terms of self-heating, smoldering, decomposition, and burning, he mentions in the book that it's really important to understand the properties of the material here. So you need to control the moisture content of the material, the temperature that's being stored in. You need to look at correct cycling and cooling processes, depending on what materials you're looking at. You want to look at your temperature monitoring. Can you sense when you have, in terms of do you have the right sensors in place, can your operators tell when you have self-heating or smoldering or running away decomposition? Under these cases, you might look at potential nerding of silos of other storage areas and removing of foreign objects because they can be a source of the smoldering combustion as well, their source of reaction around the smoldering objects as well. One of the things here is you can actually test for and understand self-heating or smoldering of different materials. There's very specific tests that you can look at um, that we talked about on the podcast before in terms of detecting how long it would take for a runaway reaction to occur. And you actually see, you know, if you're shipping uh, wood pellets or bulk material across in um, bulk container ships, we can do that. You can actually measure how long it would take for that to react. And if it's going to take longer to ship that shipment across, you know it's going to come in hot. It's going to come in reacting. So you don't want to just put it right on a conveying system and start conveying it through at the terminal that you're receiving it at because you're going to be conveying smoldering masses and leading to the chance of having an explosion. Likewise, internal to a processing operation, you really need to understand the self-heating and smoldering and decomposition nature of the materials that you're working with. That will help you design your cycling strategies or your cooling strategies for those materials. And again, you want to be looking at how do we detect and monitor those hazards as they develop. The second um, ignition source he mentions is open flames and hot gases. A lot of these are going to be organizational, so hot work, torch cutting, welding. But there are some operational ones as well, like looking at your plant layout and design. You probably don't want the open burner right beside a dump station for grain dust, say. The next ignition source that he mentions is hot surfaces. So this could be like motor casings, internal components, bearings, anywhere where there are potential mechanical rubbing, although I guess that would go under mechanical impact, which we'll cover later. An important note here is that dust actually adds thermal insulation to these surfaces. So if you have a motor or an internal compartment of a planer, say, that has, you know, it's chock-a-block full of uh, wood chippings or wood shavings, this is going to insulate that motor and cause it to overheat even more. So in here, you really want to understand the minimum layer ignition temperature of the materials you're working with and keep those hot surfaces or those bearings or whatever it is that's going to ignite that below those minimum ignition temperatures. You can also use things like thermal imaging cameras, uh, thermal imaging videos or thermal imaging guns to say, hey, how hot are these surfaces and are we keeping them cool enough so they're not going to cause an issue? Three more ignition sources that he mentions in this chapter. One is conveyance of smoldering nests. So this is where you have material that gets, say, stuck in a dryer um, and not transported and it gets heat, heated too much. And then when it actually releases, it moves downstream as a hot nest, which can actually ignite an explosion. So you see this maybe in spray dryers where material builds up on the side and falls to the bottom of the hopper. You can also see it in horizontal dryers as well when material gets stuck and if it gets heated too much, then it gets conveyed, say, into the dust collector as a smoldering nest. Here you really want to understand the tendency of the materials that stick together and get caught up in the processing operation, and you need to tackle it from an engineering design perspective rather than just take it for granted that you're going to have these smoldering nests 
try to prevent from them downstream. We've seen this and you really want to try to understand the materials you're working with and come up with an engineering design in terms of your dryer or the, the system that you're using to prevent the smoldering nest instead of trying to you know, capture it before it comes an issue downstream. Yes, you need to have the prevention and protection systems downstream as well. Take a look at why the smoldering nest happening in the first place and is there any way to stop that? Mechanical impact is also talked about and this would be kind of two versions. So moving equipment, so say a rotating drum or an elevator bucket leg that's rubbing against the side of the casing. Here you might need alignment sensors or some sort of sensor to say, hey, is this rubbing? Is it getting hot? You can look at temperature sensors as well. Or foreign objects. A classic example of this is a, you know, a metal screw that breaks off and makes it into a hammer mill. That screw is going to get milled, get hot, and that can be an ignition source for the, the material that's in that mill as well. Here you might be looking at systems to remove these foreign materials, including screens, magnets, different options for, for getting that material out, drop boxes, other things that can remove those foreign objects. And the last ignition source that Dr. Eckhoff talks about in the book is electrostatic sparks, arcs, and discharges. So this is a topic all on its own. Um, the really short Coles Note version is any material from a combustible dust standpoint, when it's dispersed as a cloud, has a minimum ignition energy. So how much energy would you actually need released and at what rate to, to ignite that cloud? And if that ignition energy gets low enough, say 50 millijoules or less, you're going to be starting to look at electrostatic ignition sources being strong enough to ignite that material. So it's really about testing your dust, understanding your minimum ignition energy, understanding whether or not electrostatic sources, including sparks, arcs, and discharges, um, can ignite that material as well. Then if it can, then you need to look at how to remove that. So grounding and bonding might come important, looking at conductive materials, looking at the conductivity of your powders as well. Um, those all come into design of electrostatic uh, safety systems as well. So that is the short and succinct coverage of prevention mechanisms for removing ignition sources. So self-heating, smoldering, decomposition, and burning. You want to remove all those sources. Open flames and hot gases. You want to remove hot surfaces. Conveyance of smoldering nests. You want to avoid mechanical impact from rubbing or from foreign objects getting into processing equipment. Um, and you want to avoid electrostatic stark, sparks, arcs, and discharges when they're strong enough to ignite the powders that you're working with. So moving then into part two, we're looking at preventing the explosible dust cloud itself. So there's a couple of things here. He talks about inerting by adding an inert gas. He talks about keeping the dust concentration outside the explosive range. And also inerting by adding an inert dust to the mixture as well, which is less common but uh, can also be used in some cases. So in terms of inerting by adding inert gas, uh, most common inert gases include carbon dioxide, water vapor, flue gases, nitrogen, and other rare gases. And to do this, you need a closed system and you need to be able to add those gases or have them present in sufficient quantities to displace the oxygen. So the oxygen level is actually below the limiting oxygen concentration needed to ignite that cloud of material. I've talked about this many times in the podcast. If you have an inerting system in place, you need to realize that you haven't removed the hazard. You just put a safeguard in place. So you need to be even more careful about ignition sources when you have an inerting system because when that inerting system goes down, and if you have ignition sources that are active and in uh, present in the vicinity, then they're going to ignite that material every time. You also need to look at the very stringent requirements for monitoring um, and redundant systems for inerting to avoid those same things that I just mentioned, uh, cases where the system goes down and how are you going to alert your operators to that that there's a really high risk scenario going on at that time. Talking about keeping the dust concentration outside the exposable range, this generally means below the minimum exposable concentration, 
pebble gases, there's upper and lower flammability limits. It's not very common to keep the dust above the upper flammability limit because it's very high for combustible dust. It's not completely unheard of if you have a dense phase conveying system or you know a screw conveyor. Well, maybe not a screw conveyor. A screw conveyor generally you're trying to you're going to have lower concentration in the top of the screw conveyor. But anyway, there generally aren't a lot of cases where you're protecting by keeping the dust too high. Um, again, maybe in some dense phase conveyance systems, you're looking at doing that. Generally keeping it below the minimum disposable concentration of the dust. And a quote from Dr. Eckhoff's book is, it's often difficult inside processing equipment because the dust concentration is uh, varies in unpredictable and uncontrollable ways. So, an example of this example where you can do this is ducting. So if you keep your flow velocities high enough, you won't have enough dust in that ducting at any given time to cause or lead to an explosion or to be able to support an explosion happening. We want to then make sure that you're doing your periodic checks that you don't have dust buildup, periodic checks that you do have the flow that you need to keep that dust moving. Um, similarly for things like cabinets for electric static powder coating, um, flow through dryers. These are all cases where you may be able to keep your dust concentrations below the MEC of that material um, and avoid having a, a dust explosion. The last example in terms of preventing explosable dust clouds he talks about is adding an inert dust. So this is most common in coal mining or other mining applications. Well, they'll add an inert rock dust to the coal dust on the gallery floor. So then if you do have an explosion, say of methane that happens at the face of the mine, it can't pick up the coal dust and propagate an explosion down the coal shaft or down those galleries because when it does, it picks up the rock dust as well. And that inert dust is in such high concentrations that it can't sustain that flame propagating throughout the, the coal gallery. There are some other applications where you may be able to apply inert dust in other processing operations, but it's pretty hard because of contamination in food processing. And there's not a lot of cases. I, I can't really think of any off the top of my head, but you may be able to come up with a case where adding inert dust can prevent the explosive dust cloud from forming. So that's it for this sort of second category, inerting by adding inert gas nerding by adding inert dust and keeping the dust concentration outside the disposable range are all ways you can prevent the explosible dust cloud from forming. So we talked about preventing ignition sources, preventing the explosible dust cloud from forming. What do we do when this actually happens and you have an explosion that starts then? This is where you start looking at your protection strategies or your mitigation strategies as they're called in the book that we're looking at, Dust Explosions and the Process Industries. So mitigating an explosion that once it does occur, has a number of options here. Um, preventing explosion transfer between processing units, which uh, we kind of call isolation nowadays, explosion pressure-resistant equipment, explosion venting, quenching tubes, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, automatic detection and suppression system, good housekeeping practices, and then construction and layout of buildings. So in terms of preventing explosion transfer between processing units, this is really isolation. And there's two key reasons why this is really important. When explosion happens in one processing vessel, if it moves to the next one and the next one, each time it moves through a new piece of ducting, a new elbow, a new processing equipment, it's more and more turbulence, which makes the flame react faster and faster and more violently. This sort of escalates as it moves down the processing unit. You also see pressure piling. So as that reaction happens in the first processing vessel, vessel it pre-pressurizes the next one, which pre-pressurizes the next one. You have more and more violent explosions as that uh, flame propagates from one to another. So you really want isolation, one, to you know, avoid the extent of the damage done by a single dust explosion. We also need it because it's going to avoid an escalation effect from happening. 
So that explosion that happens in the second vessel is going to be much stronger in the first. Third vessel is going to be much stronger than the second. Um, it gives a, a number of you know practical examples, and there's a lot of different isolation technologies out there now. Um, some of the ones he mentions is in screw conveyors, putting a choke in where you actually remove one of the teeth, so you have this material wall that builds, um, or putting a baffle plate in does sort of the same thing in this uh, screw conveyor. Using a rotary airlock with correct tolerances between the veins and the housing that can't allow an explosion to propagate or a flame to get through. Passive devices for blocking a dust or changing the direction of the flow. This includes abort gates, flat valves, float valves. Uh, there's all kinds of different solutions here. Active devices for stopping propagation explosion can be used as well. So actually having explosion detection and isolation system where you have an engineered sensor that goes off based on temperature or pressure or infrared radiation, and then that triggers suppression bottles to be released and stop the explosion and propagating to the next vessel as well. The second mitigation option he brings up is explosion pressure resistant equipment. Um, in other words, making the, the vessel strong enough that can contain the explosion. So some of the challenges here include, you know, evaluating the strength of your processing unit. It's not that practical. This will be used in, in end application, except for in some very specific cases. If you have a very strong piece of equipment already, like a really heavy hammer mill, that might be built strong enough then to contain the pressure of explosion should it occur. But they need to be built really strong and you really have a good estimate of the strength of that processing unit to avoid deformation or to avoid um, the, the piece of equipment being damaged when explosion happens and to avoid it from propagating to another piece of equipment as well. The third mitigation solution that uh, Dr. Eckhoff talks about is explosion venting. Here you need to design the vent area correctly if you don't and you make it too small, then you may have a case where you blow out the whole side of your processing equipment. So you really need to consider that. You also need to consider the venting efficiency. So if you have things right next to the vent, um, if you're putting ducting on so you can vent it outside, which is needed in a lot of cases um, to avoid potential hazards caused by venting, which we'll talk about in a second, all these need to go into then actually designing your venting correctly so that you have enough surface area on the side of that vessel or the top of that vessel or wherever it is to vent the pressure from the explosion and avoid it from deforming or blowing apart or falling over. And he lists a bunch of potential hazards that are caused by venting they need to look at as well. So there will be, in most cases, a strong flame ejected from the vent opening. So this needs to be considered. Um, emission of blast waves from the vent, so you have very strong pressure release from that um, that can impact workers, um, impact nearby processing equipment as well. Reaction forces on the equipment. There's some really great old videos of explosion testing where they've actually have you know mock-ups of dust collectors where the vent opens the flame ejects and the dust collector falls over because the the stand that it's sitting on wasn't strong enough to support the recoil forces from that uh, flame ejecting from the vent um, emission of solid objects emission of the vent itself it's going to pop off um, and if it doesn't have a cable retaining it or a chain retaining it where is that going to go uh, last emission of toxic combustible products these are all things you need to consider when you're designing and implementing your venting system. So it needs to be designed correctly to have enough vent area. Then also you need to look at these other potential hazards caused by venting. In this chapter, quenching tubes are also brought up, and this would be like a preliminary version of flameless venting. A lot of those considerations are the same as traditional venting in terms of recoil forces, in terms of making sure you have the correct vent areas. It just comes down mostly to understanding how the quenching technology or the flameless venting technology is going to change the venting efficiency. So much more vent area you're going to need in your processing piece of equipment than uh, you'd otherwise need for sort of your traditional standard type vent. This will allow you then to 
have that venting in a location where a strong flame will not eject, eject from the opening. But you also need to consider a lot of the other things like blast waves, um, reaction force on equipment, and the other things that come up in, in traditional explosion venting. Then the sort of to round out the mitigation options, uh, you have automatic detection and suppression systems. So having a sensor that is detected on pressure or on IR uh, radiation or on temperature that can detect when the flame is passing and then can activate extinguishing agent. This is a, an automatic system for mitigation and suppression. Dr. Eckhoff closes out this section talking about good housekeeping practices, so making sure you keep control of your fugitive dust. This is really to avoid a secondary explosion in the facility outside the processing equipment. You need to evaluate and set up a cleaning schedule so that you're not meeting those minimal levels of dust needed to sustain a deflagration. You also need to use safe cleanup practices and train workers on those practices to avoid causing hazards when you're cleaning that dust up. And so then the last section in this this part on mitigating explosion once it does occur is on construction layout of buildings. There's actually a bunch of interesting points here that I hadn't quite considered before, so it's it's worth kind of mentioning them here. So he says that you know an ideal factory should be located a safe distance from other buildings. That'd be a really good design consideration to start with. Um, ideally, it'd be only one level. Now, I know this is you know not possible in all cases, but uh, especially if you have a a system where you need to do I don't know, sifting and sorting and you use those levels to have different equipment for doing that. But in the ideal case, you only have a one level. And if it is multiple levels, then it's recommended to keep the levels that have the greatest risk of hazard as high as possible, preferably on the roof. So you don't have a, a condition where you're having explosion, you know, at the bottom of the building, it's causing the building to fall down. You can also have hazardous items located in special areas that are isolated in the building and well vented. You need to take really good care in evaluating the wall strength of the building. If it's a very flimsy-sided building from a structural member consideration or standpoint, it's very likely you're going to have collapsed that if you have an explosion in that room. And we recently had this at the last dust safety conference. There was a presentation given at the end of one of the days by uh, Dr. Susie Smith and Dr. Russell Logel from Exponent talking about some instant investigations that they've been involved in, some of the considerations there. They talked about a large dust explosion that happened a few years ago with one of the kind of tilt-up building constructions and basically just blew out those walls. So those tilt-up building you know, walls don't have a lot of strength from a, a pushing perspective from the inside of the building. And they just sort of folded out and then the roof came collapsing down after the explosion. So you really want to consider those, you know, those buildings, whether or not they're going to be strong enough to withstand, withstand explosion when it happens. Um, if the building is really strong, like a concrete grain terminal or, or grain uh, elevator, then it's possible that the vents could, the windows could be used as vents. We've seen this in some of the older designs. In this case, you really want to avoid, you know, glass windows. You might need to look at plastic windows with uh, that are anchored by a chain so that uh, when they do pop off, you don't have this other hazard flying out um, to people that are landing below. And he really talks through in the end of this chapter, the ideal building description. So, he says, you know, as long as there's no reasons for choosing other solutions, it's recommended that factory buildings in which dust explosions occur be constructed as indicated in, in a figure in the book. So the basis principle is that you have very strong structural members um, tying all the floors together and providing some, you know, strength to the building. But then all the individual building panels are, are relatively lightweight so they can blow it over if an explosion happens. And you see this actually design used in some storage rooms or rooms that you know might have an explosion that 
need to be enclosed maybe to keep wind down, but you have a, a wall that's designed to blow it if an explosion happens. This is sort of an extension of this concept that he's talking about. The key you want to make sure is that your lateral structural members, the ones that are holding the floors up, aren't going to blow out. They have some sacrificial component that's going to actually release that pressure wave and cause the building not to collapse. So that's it for this, you know, quick and dirty summary of methods for preventing and mitigating dust explosions. Again, this is not comprehensive. This is not all the different possibilities. It's probably not even half of the possibilities. I came through this chapter 1.4 in uh, dust explosions in the processing industries or in the process industries and really thought, hey, this would be an interesting, you know, podcast episode just to say these are the different options that are out there. So in the book, the solutions are organized into preventing ignition sources, preventing explosive dust concentrations, and mitigating explosion once it does occur. Um, under preventing ignition sources, we had self-heating, smoldering, and decomposition, preventing open flames and hot gases, preventing hot surfaces from occurring, um, conveyance and smoldering nests, mechanical impact, and electrostatic sparks, arcs, and discharges. From preventing exposable dust clouds, you're really looking at the oxygen or oxidant that's available um, or the combustible dust. So removing the oxidant you, by replacing with inert gas. Um, you can also add inert dust in there that will render the the mixture non-exposable. Um, you can also keep the dust concentration outside the exposable range. So those are really your two categories and options for preventing a dust explosion. Then we talked through a number of mitigation options. So preventing explosion transfer between processing units, isolation, explosion pressure, resistant equipment, explosion venting, both sorry, your traditional explosion venting and then your, your flameless venting technology, um, automatic detection and suppression systems, and good housekeeping practices. We close out talking about construction layout of buildings, which was sort of an interesting section at the end of this, this chapter that talked about considering you know your whole building and what's the impact going to be if it has a, an explosion in one of the compartments. Is that going to be able to cause collapse that building and, and cause a larger impact to the occupancy as well? So that's it for this podcast episode. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. And I appreciate everything you're doing in the industry's handling combustible dust making them safer out there in the world every day.